Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And Elon Musk buys Twitter week continues here in Virtual Legality as, well, the internet decides that it would prefer to not have this deal go through. At least some corners of the internet in ways both real and imagined. And we're going to talk about those in today's video. Now, if you aren't familiar with any of this, it's been a wild month for Elon Musk and the Twitter social media platform. We've got a playlist. This will actually be the 10th video added to this playlist in only a few weeks. Yesterday, we went over the details of the merger agreement. And in all honesty, I thought I covered everything salient that might possibly come up in the future on this deal. And as Elon Musk has proven throughout this playlist, it turned out that I was wrong. We're going to get to that as the bulk of this video. Before we do, though, I want to talk about a couple of things that happened overnight, as again, many facets of the internet, of folks that are otherwise advocating for certain things, either politically or elsewise, have moved to try to see if they can stop this deal, including a press release from a couple of days ago from somebody called Open Markets that asked the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, to potentially block the deal. Now, as we've talked about in this space, when you're looking at the competitive aspects of a deal, our regulators here in the U.S. that are charged with evaluating that are the Federal Trade Commission and the Department of Justice, which you do see included in the list of parties to receive this letter. Now, they say the deal should be blocked effectively because Elon Musk owns SpaceX, owns Starlink, and can control internet platforms, and that's a little bit too much. Now, the FTC, DOJ, probably proper parties to receive that kind of messaging, regardless of how the FTC might otherwise treat it. But the FCC doesn't have that authority, either under the Clayton Act or the Hart-Scott-Rodino Act that we have talked about in the past. And so at least one commissioner of the FCC in the last couple of hours said, no, we reject the call. Yesterday, the Open Markets Institute issued a release that called for the FCC, FTC, and DOJ to block Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter. They argue that the transaction poses a direct threat to American democracy and free speech. Their release cites the Telegraph Act of 1860, among other statutory authorities, in the context of arguing that these federal agencies, including the FCC, have authority to block the deal. And Commissioner Carr issued the following statement in response. The FCC has no authority to block Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter, and to suggest otherwise is absurd. I would welcome the full FCC, making it clear that we will not entertain these types of frivolous arguments. Now, some linked this to me, and I'm very appreciative of that as the FCC saying this. That is not, in fact, the case. This is a single commissioner at the FCC out of four listed here on the leadership page. It will be interesting to see if the FCC on the whole takes any kind of different tack from Commissioner Carr, but certainly, at least here in virtual legality, I think it's a big-time reach to ask the FCC to get in there and block the transaction. The FCC could do regulatory things, could otherwise look at the way Twitter operates. It is not generally in charge in the U.S. framework of evaluating the competitive nature of potential acquisitions. So I think Commissioner Carr is right there, but of course, we will follow it here in virtual legality. But that's just kind of the tone of things about this particular transaction. And as you've probably heard from me in virtual legality, I'm neither here nor there on Elon Musk. Sometimes I think he says smart things. Sometimes he rubs me the wrong way. But certainly this prospective purchase of Twitter has really brought out a lot of passion in people. And a lot of you linked me to something called the Palmer Report yesterday. And I have to admit, I'm not familiar with this particular source. 
but they said as follows. Elon Musk has publicly attacked two high-ranking Twitter employees today, putting him in violation of the disparagement clause in his buyout agreement. It's unclear if he's just unraveling in general or if he's purposely trying to get the buyout deal voided. Now, it would surprise me if he was purposely trying to get the buyout deal voided, especially on day two after he signed a virtually unconditional $1 billion guarantee, which is part of what we discussed in yesterday's video, but not impossible. As I said, Elon Musk continues to surprise me with what he is doing, what he is saying, what he is announcing in respect to this particular transaction. But as a lawyer, I looked at this and say, all right, show me the receipts. Talk to me about what you are saying here. And then the Palmer Report attacks people that are reading it to the lazy dummies on the left and right who are suggesting this didn't happen and we just made it up. Several major news outlets, including Bloomberg, have also reported on it. 10 seconds of Googling would have saved you from embarrassing yourselves. And maybe that is in fact the case, or maybe as we'll talk about, the Palmer Report is embarrassing itself a little bit. And then they go on to say Axios and Reuters all agree with us. But what are they really talking about? They link us to a Bloomberg article that goes and talks about one specific Elon Musk tweet. We're going to look at that in just a second. But first, because I didn't highlight it yesterday, we actually have to look at the public announcements publicity provision of the merger agreement, which mostly does what you would anticipate a provision like this would do in a merger agreement. It says the company parent and acquisition sub. And if you weren't with us yesterday, the company is Twitter. Parent is X Holdings 1. And acquisition sub is X Holdings 2. Both parent and acquisition sub are Elon Musk entities. You can just think of them as Elon Musk because he's purchasing it through a specific structure called a reverse triangular merger for certain tax and other business benefits. If you want more on that, please do check out yesterday's video. But parent and acquisition sub are Elon Musk. They will consult each other before issuing any press release. And none of the parties to this agreement or their affiliates shall issue any such press release or make any public statement prior to obtaining the other party's consent. General broad-based, we're not going to mess with each other's press on this deal, at least until it's done. Now, there are a couple of exceptions. In addition, the company may, without parent or acquisition subs consent, communicate to its employees, customers, suppliers, and consultants, provided that such communication is consistent with prior communications of the company or any communications plan previously agreed to by parent and the company. Said another way, you are going to proceed with your communications in the ordinary course of business. You could talk to your employees. You could talk to your vendors. You can talk to who you need to talk to to run Twitter because Elon Musk doesn't want the value of Twitter to evaporate as they're not allowed to pick up the phone for six months or even potentially 12 months, depending on what regulators do. So you're allowed to continue with that communication. Notwithstanding the foregoing, the restriction set forth here shall not apply in connection with any adverse board recommendation change or dispute between the parties regarding this agreement or the transactions contemplated hereby. Here's another exception. Remember, the board, because of its fiduciary responsibilities, can accept a superior proposal. If somebody rolls in and offers double the price of the shares, and significantly less than that would get them to adverse board recommendation, they can go and they can say, we're rescinding our approval of the merger agreement. We're not recommending it for approval of the stockholders. We're going to go in a different direction. And they can communicate on that. That's an exception that makes sense. You can actually see the drafting here if you're a lawyer because this is pretty clunky. This was happening very, very fast. You've got the baseline rule. This is in a template at one of the law firms. And then you start adding exceptions. These are the lawyers saying, well, I need to be able to do this. I need to be able to do this. Then you have a notwithstanding the foregoing from Elon Musk's side. And this is where people have kind of gotten in the weeds a little bit. Notwithstanding the foregoing, that's the limitation on his ability to communicate. 
the equity investor, Elon Musk, shall be permitted to issue tweets about the merger or the transactions contemplated hereby, with an exception to the exception, so long as such tweets do not disparage the company, Twitter, or any of its representatives, which broadly are the people that are acting on Twitter's behalf, especially in respect of the transaction. So you're allowed to tweet about the merger. You're allowed to talk about it, Elon Musk, because that's very important to him. He clearly negotiated for a provision like that. It's very unusual in a section like this in a merger agreement, but you have to promise not to disparage anybody. And there's a fundamental problem with this, and it's that disparage doesn't really have a great definition in and of itself. I think intuitively, kind of the normal dictionary way we think about it is saying something bad about somebody else, but that's not necessarily the legal way to think about disparagement. And very often, if this were a fulsomely negotiated document, if it actually spent a month going back and forth between lawyers, you'd probably not see just disparage be the baseline for this kind of exception to the exception. You'd see a long definitional string of what we're talking about, reputational harm, economic harm, what you are and aren't allowed to say, etc. Because this is so ambiguous, we wind up in some very unusual situations. But that's the state of play. Elon's allowed to tweet. He's not allowed to disparage Twitter or its representatives. And then the Palmer Report and Bloomberg and some others suggest that the following exchange is disparagement. So here we got have, and I'm going to butcher this name, I apologize, uh, Cigar in Jetty putting out a tweet talking about Vigigati, who is the lawyer that was crying during this specific conversation about the Musk takeover. We discussed this yesterday. Top censorship advocate at Twitter who famously, quote unquote, gaslit the world on Joe Rogan's podcast and censored the Hunter Biden laptop story, is very upset about the Elon Musk takeover. Obviously, that tweet in and of itself, editorializing, saying a lot of things there. And then Elon Musk responds to it. He says, suspending the Twitter account of a major news organization for publishing a truthful story was obviously incredibly inappropriate. And this is the only Twitter exchange that is covered by Bloomberg. This is the main one that I saw in the other places besides the Palmer Report. We're going to talk about what I think is identified as the second interaction here in just a minute, although I couldn't actually replicate that. I couldn't find it on Twitter myself. And I looked at this and a lot of people asked me, really, thank you, everybody that flagged this for me. And I said, well, that doesn't sound of disparagement to me. Right? And when we're thinking about this intuitively, talking about it as a legal kind of concept, this isn't obviously disparaging Twitter. This isn't saying Twitter's a bad company, Twitter's a bad place to work, Twitter is doing very bad things, etc. It's not disparaging the company, it's not disparaging its reputation, it's not an ad hominem attack, it's not an attack on this person, which is really where the, the Palmer Report and others that I have seen go to saying, hey, Vigigati is somehow bad. He doesn't mention her, etc. And then the real kicker to this is that Twitter has in and of itself already acknowledged that the Hunter Biden issue was a problem for the platform, right? We only have to go look at the New York Post, which was obviously the most affected here, to see a summary of the March 25th, 2021 testimony before Congress of then CEO Jack Dorsey, who as the headline says, says blocking posts Hunter Biden story was total mistake. Won't say who made it. Twitter doesn't have a censoring department that blocked the post from tweeting last fall. CEO Jack Dorsey said Thursday, but he wouldn't reveal who was responsible for the blunder. At a congressional hearing on misinformation and social media, Dorsey said Twitter made a total mistake by barring users from sharing the post's bombshell October report 
about Hunter Biden's email. So the one thing when we're talking about disparagement, when you're talking about breaching a contract of this size and of this type, so you got to be really clear on this. Elon Musk essentially agreeing with what Twitter, through its CEO, all of a year ago said, cannot possibly, in my mind, legally, be a legitimate disparagement angle for anyone seeking that billion dollars from Elon Musk or getting out of the deal if you're the board of Twitter to actually take. And I know it's attractive to say, hey, look, this is a response to a fairly mean tweet about this individual and maybe just responding could be that kind of disparagement. I don't think you get there with that. The actual content of this tweet is agreed to by Jack Dorsey, doesn't actually call out anything, especially that Twitter hasn't already admitted to. And so I really think this is a very weak case for that. And to be honest, the other tweet that is mentioned in these various sources, and somebody linked me to a story uh, from a site called Quartz, is equally bad. It says, just hours later, Musk replied to a tweet by right-wing conspiracy theorist Mike Cernovich, alleging that Twitter lawyer Jim Baker, a former FBI general counsel, facilitated fraud. I couldn't find this tweet. I couldn't find Musk's response. His response is apparently, sounds pretty bad, dot, dot, dot. And to be honest, again, that sounds like, oh, I need to be educated on that. That does sound pretty bad. And while I might not be responding to any of these particular tweets, if I were in Elon Musk's shoes, nor would I probably be following most of the people tweeting here, when you talk about disparagement, it realistically has to be something that disparages, that actually questions a representative of Twitter in this particular case and disparages them. Sounds pretty bad. I'm going to look into it really isn't the same thing as disparagement because we want to be very careful in the law about contractual non-disparagement provisions, right? We talk about it when we, with respect to defamation. We talk about it with respect to other things that you might say. The First Amendment really is sacrosanct in the United States. And all of the things that otherwise restrict your speech are looked askance by the courts. They want to narrowly tailor all of those things. And as I said, we have seen that in practice, especially in Delaware. So why does Delaware matter? Well, Twitter is a Delaware corporation. This is a merger agreement that relates to the internal governance of that Delaware corporation. So basically the parties don't have a choice. This agreement shall be governed by and construed in accordance with the laws of the state of Delaware. So we find ourselves in Delaware in the court of chancery, in general, just looking at Delaware law to evaluate these things. And as I said, disparagement isn't actually a very well-defined term. So you can go, you can search through these court cases, and they're all going to be a little bit novel because everybody defines it differently. And I just found an example from a few years back to look at how this was covered in a different agreement, where you actually see what I mean when I say these are ordinarily defined much more rigorously because disparagement is such a nothing word. So here we have a section from an agreement that says non-disparagement. The parties agree not to make any oral or written communication to any person or entity which disparages or has the effect of damaging the reputation of or otherwise working in any way to the detriment of the other party, except as required by local, state, or federal law. And then they liquidate the damages for what the problem will be. And then this court, in evaluating whether or not disparagement occurred here, and this was actually uh, an email exchange that basically said, we're going to bury my former employers in some kind of public capacity. They found that that wasn't disparagement. 
because of that definition, because of the description of reputational harm, but also the Black's Law Dictionary. You always know you're in trouble if you find the court going to the Black's Law Dictionary or some other kind of extrinsic source to try to help you understand what you just wrote in your contract. The lawyers probably didn't define enough things if you're heading on over to the dictionary. But here the court says, Black's Law Dictionary defines disparagement as a false and injurious statement that discredits or detracts from the reputation of another's character, property, product, or business. Now that's a very legalistic definition. That's effectively that disparagement has to be defamatory. It's got this false kind of concept. And I don't believe that every court would actually require that to find disparagement, to find a breach of that provision. So you have to take that with a grain of salt as well. But if you aren't defining things, if you're just using the word disparagement, as happens here, you could easily find yourself with a Black's Law Dictionary type argument. And then when Elon Musk tweets what Twitter already said, you know, show me the falsity. When he says effectively, sounds pretty bad to a report that's coming out from another, should he tweet that? Probably not. But show me the falsity. Is that disparagement of the company? And I have to say, realistically, it isn't. And then the real politic of all of this is you don't blow up a deal like this when your fiduciary duty is already being questioned by former SEC commissioners at Yahoo Finance, by others saying the board's poison pill was way too much, way too fast to properly consider what was a realistic deal, to go and say, well, he breached because of those tweets in order to potentially get a billion dollars and sneak out of this deal would again be inviting lawsuits for a breach of your duties to the company that you represent as the board of directors. So while I can appreciate the mean tweets tone of the Palmer Report and the others that are sharing this uh, around, realistically, lawyer to lawyer, I don't see disparagement here. And I certainly don't see any party seeking to unravel the deal for just these couple of tweets. Does that mean Elon Musk won't violate that provision in the near or even medium term? I can't say that because he continues to surprise and who knows what he's going to tweet tomorrow. This has been Virtual Legality for today. If you enjoy conversations about technology, pop culture, software, video games, and more, all through the lens of business and law, please consider supporting the channel. We've got a Utreon, which gets the most money to the channel for our support rather than the platforms. Please do check that out. And we've got a Patreon that you can check out as well. If neither of those appeal, just subscribing, ringing bells, upvoting, commenting, engaging with the YouTube algorithm, every little bit helps grow the channel. And honestly, we've been growing at a good clip. And I appreciate all the support and all the help from each and every one of you. If you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.